I would say I'm not forced birth, I'm anti-dismemberment. Father James Martin, he is not helping confuse people, he confuses them more, environmentalists. They will only focus on what are the costs of fossil fuels, but not their benefits. All these hot takes and more on this episode of the Edify Podcast. Trent Horn is an author and apologist for Catholic Answers and the host of the Council of Trent podcast. Trent, welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, every time we go into an election year, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot about what the church calls the common good. And other people might say, well, you're veering towards socialism. You know, there's always been bad political ideologies gaining favor, but yeah. socialism seems to have grown um, in popularity. And I don't think that's just all because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez either, you know, right. who's really, really promoting it by name. Why do you think it's becoming so popular? What, what's making it gain traction? Why can't Catholics be a socialist? I think two reasons. One would primarily be a misunderstanding of what socialism is. I think that's the biggest reason. That when you ask people, okay, so you support socialism, what do you mean by socialism? And what they'll often define is a kind of welfare state, usually one that operates under a free market or capitalism. So they'll say, well, with socialism, I think that uh, the poor should be provided for, there should be free health care, there should be uh, free public education, even for universities, that government should provide these resources for every citizen. And that is not socialism. And what they'll say is, to, so I know they're not talking about socialism, is they'll say, you know, like in Denmark or Sweden or in Scandinavian countries. But even the elected officials and leaders of those countries, like in Denmark and Sweden, have come out and said, we are not socialist. Sweden has more billionaires per capita than the United States. These are countries that became very wealthy through free market economies, through uh, different reinvestments uh, from their own industries into their economies. And so they've chosen to spend that on different welfare and entitlement programs. And Catholics are free. To, and what I would say is Catholics are free to reasonably disagree. Should the government spend this much on this social program or should they spend more or should they spend less? The issue of how much government should spend on programs to help the poor well, everyone's going to disagree right. about- It's a prudential judgment. It's a prudential judgment. That's right. Socialism is not what the government does for us. It's more what the government does to us. Okay. And in particular, it's what the government does to the economy. Socialism is the idea that this, the community, but in usually in most practical applications, the state, uh, controls uh, the majority of firms. So businesses, farms, industries, factories, corporations, who owns these things? So the idea behind early socialism in the, the 19th, later in the 20th century, is the idea that the owners of these companies exploit workers, they underpay them, and that's not fair. Wouldn't it be better if we all owned these companies? If everyone owned it collectively or socially, then we would make sure that everyone was, was compensated and were, and were treated fairly. And that's what motivated Pope Leo XIII to publish his encyclical Rerum Novarum, mm -hmm. where he takes, uh, cap because the thing in the 19th century, it was not poverty that was new, that motivated the Pope to say something. Mm -hmm. Throughout the course of human history, 99% of people have been poor. And then you had kings and warlords who right. were rich. Right. But most people, poverty was the standard throughout all of And private history. property was almost unheard of. Almost unheard of. Once again, uh, only for those who managed to inherit it 
or you stole it or inherited it from somebody else who stole it. Right. Uh, but what happened in the 19th century was you had people who could uh, create wealth through factories, through other types of industry, and then reinvest that wealth back into the companies they had created. And so they were able to create wealth by uh, creating goods and services that benefited others. And so the question was, now what do you do with these islands of wealth amidst the sea of poverty? Mm -hmm. And so Poblio said, look, if you own a factory, you cannot treat your workers like they're bags of coal, where they're just, uh, you have to treat them as people with, with dignity. You can't employ women and children in occupations that are they're unfit for. You have to give workers the ability to rest on the Sabbath, for example. And pay them justly for pay their them wages. Justly. I mean, that's right from scripture. Yes, the, the wages of the labor, they cry out. You've held back their wages and the laborers Christ cry out. To heaven for justice, right? But then Pope Leo said, so those who advocated for socialism had a good intention. But that's always been the problem with socialism. Good intentions... Uh, but you can have bad results even with good intentions, was saying that all of this wealth should be concentrated socially and no one should own it privately. And that the community, which ends up being the state, practical purposes, ends up owning all of these companies and making these different decisions mm -hmm. uh, and allocating resources where they see fit. And that's why Pope Leo XIII said that if you, if you did this, the sources of wealth themselves would run, would run dry, Earlier popes said that socialism created a harvest of misery because it conflicts with the, the right to own private property, the right to, to grow wealth. Pope Leo XIII said that a man should live thriftly and he should save and then maybe earning a tract of land to be his own and then pass that on to his children. Right. But socialists don't believe in, in right. being able to do that because they're opposed to the family as being the central unit of society. That's where the state fits that role. To give you an example, when the pilgrims... Uh, landed in the New World, you know, Plymouth Colony of the Pilgrims, they originally tried communal farming. So everybody farmed, all everything you grew was taken to a central depository, essentially. Right. Every, all the crops were collected and then distributed to people. Okay. And so it seems like a good idea, right? What about people who yeah. can't farm as much? We don't want anyone to go hungry. Right. But the problem was it destroyed the incentive to work hard. Because let's say no matter how hard you work on your crops, you're always going to get the same amount of food back as a ration. Right. Well, why bother working really, really hard? If that guy can be lazy with his crops and he and I get the same amount of food, well, I'm not going to work hard. Right. But then what happens? A few people start to think, I'm not going to work hard. And the system will compensate for a while until there are too many free riders and then suddenly there's not enough food. And the governor, Governor Bradford of the colony said, this is a terrible idea. Right. Uh, but God in his wisdom has given us a better idea. Right. And so he allocated and said every family would keep their own food they grew. And the food production doubled and tripled. Mm -hmm. Because people always take care of the things that they own. Right. It's like, why do you, when you're out in public, you're playing with your kids at the park, and, you have the, and they say, Mommy, I need to go to the bathroom. And you can choose the bathroom at the park versus the bathroom at your home. Right. Why does everyone always pick the one at their house? Right, of course. Because the public bathroom, people have the mentality, if... Everybody has the right to use it, but nobody owns it. Nobody has the duty to keep it clean. Right. So really, being a socialist and being a Catholic are antithetical to each other. They are. That's why uh, Pope Pius XI said that no, no, Catholic can, no good Catholic can be a true socialist. Mm. Now, you could be a socialist in name, but it's not right. really socialism. Right. And you'll have people who will apply it to what are essentially just 
welfare states. Mm -hmm. And that's something you can have, though you can have even criticism of that. Pope St. John Paul II and Santissimus Anus warned about the inefficiencies that mm -hmm. can uh, follow a welfare state and that they might prolong the problems that they actually seek to solve. So socialism really doesn't contribute to the common good. No, it doesn't. And that's why in my book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist, I talk about how in Pope Leo XIII, Pope Pius XI, you, you have these principled arguments against socialism. But then, especially from the 1930s onward, you start to get practical arguments mm -hmm. uh, because you can see where socialism is tried and how it fails. You have examples. You have the Soviet Union. Uh, you have uh, Cuba. You have Venezuela now, one of the most recent examples. And what's amazing is that in these so states that are true socialism, uh, in Venezuela, for example, before in the mid-2010s, before you had the oil collapse of the economy, things were going well because Hugo Chavez nationalized industries right. and said, you know, we're going to nationalize this. You know, your electricity is going to be free. The supermarkets are going to be dirt cheap because the government subsidized every industry with oil money. Hmm. And that worked until the price of oil crashed. And then you had a society in free fall and a mass migration of, of refugees, likes which we haven't seen in a long time. Because um, what, what ends up, socialism is, is just so interesting. It is always considered a viable candidate no matter how many times it's failed. No matter how many times it fails in history, people always say, give it one more chance. Whereas free markets, no matter how many times they have succeeded, in reducing poverty, mm -hmm. that free markets help to contribute bringing global poverty levels down from 98% to 10% yeah. extreme poverty. And there are, it's also so much more respectful of human dignity and that it right. gives people pride in their work, it gives them a skill, it gives them a contribution. Right, and what is important to remember though is of course free markets are not perfect because free markets are a human invention and they are a function of human behavior and humans are sinful creatures. Mm -hmm. So they work in spite of the sinful tendencies of human beings. Right. There's always need to reform, including with things like legislation. No one is saying that government should have nothing to do with the market. You can't even have a free market without government because government enforces contracts. You need to have a contract when you're in a market mm -hmm. and who enforces that. Right. Uh, so you can, having things like safety regulations, worker occupation regulations, pay regulations, work, you know, scheduling, things like that, that's perfectly fine. And once again, people can agree to disagree on what's proper and what's onerous. But the bottom line is when you have the state commanding things, you get these unintended um, negative consequences. To, to give you an analogy, some people would look at romantic relationships. So let's say the romantic market. And you say people are free to date and marry. Now, are there abuses? Yes, you've got people who have one night stands. They, uh, they give abusive relationships. You have people that are, all kinds of bad things happen. But the answer to that is not, well, the government's just gonna decide who marries who. That way we're gonna avoid all those problems. Right. Well, in doing that, you create far more problems than you sought to solve. Instead of doing that, you need to reform what's bad in the free association instead of getting rid of it entirely. Yeah. And what I think some that's an interesting analogy because I think many Catholics and I would venture to guess that most don't understand that it was it was the church who who really advocated for freely chosen marriages right. rather than arranged marriages because of the its respect for the dignity of women and and for men that they that this had to be something that was freely chosen by both parties. Right, it's freely entered into because if you think about it uh, the role of marriage as being the domestic church 
the husband and wife enter it, uh, especially in the Eastern Church, the e Eastern Catholic theology sees the, because the, the ministers of the sacrament in the Western Church, it's the bride and the groom. Right. They are the ministers of the sacrament to each other. The church has to be a witness for it to be valid. Right. But in the Eastern Church, the minister is the priest, and he kind of confers a mini bishopric mm -hmm. on the husband and wife, because in the Eastern Church, priests can be married. Right. So you have in the Eastern Church, it's called in the Byzantine Church, the mystery of crowning. And so the crowns represent that you're kind of a priest, king, and priest's wife, queen of your domestic church mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to serve that. And of course, just as the priesthood would not be valid if you were forced into it, right. uh, same would be true for marriage. Well, so while we're on the topic of marriage, Humana Vitae, yeah. Paul VI, beautiful encyclical on married love, um, it warned against so many things, um, embracing contraception, uh, you know, artificial contraception, that is, um, right. would, would result in a host of social evils as right. well as moral evils. And so in Paul VI was absolutely prophetic in this document. Um, it mean, it, you know, it, it is very much like 1984, where we see right. all these social ills that were predicted and, and have one by one uh, come true. Um, what, from your perspective, are some of those evils that Humana Vitae predicted? And is there any hope at this point yeah. of undoing the damage? Well, I think a few that stick out in my mind would be Pope Paul VI uh, predicted a massive rise in adultery and infidelity, uh, which makes sense because naturally through the course of human history, the fact that sex leads to pregnancy is a natural safeguard mm -hmm. to using sex outside of the marital act. Right. That's why every, nearly every culture on earth has something we would call marriage mm -hmm. because there's understanding the sexual act leads to children, children are very helpless, Who's going to care for these children? Well, it's the people who create them. Right. So we need something that bonds those people together. Right. To legally tie mostly the father to the child. Mostly the father. Because that they create. It's easy to know who mom is when a baby's born. It's Correct. harder to figure out who dad is. Yeah. So that's why there's always been that presumption that the dad is whoever's married to mom. And you have stable societies when you have that. But with contraception, now what has happened, you remove, and there's the concern, right? Think about back to the story of David and Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. Is He tries to trick Uriah the Hittite. It doesn't work. He's got to murder him to cover it up. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you have contraception in the mix, suddenly sex is, it's just completely cut off from procreation. Mm -hmm. It's pursued as its own end. Right. And you have these, you know, so you have people saying, oh, well, what's the big deal? Whether it's infidelity within marriage or really infidelity to marriage through fornication, which would be engaging in the marital act before you're ever married or after you're divorced, uh, because people will say, oh, well, now I can just pursue all of this. And what's hard is that the marital act itself loses its value to people, because you can't take the same act, engage in it in a casual way, and then expect it to be this, this holy, pristine, uh, powerful communication of love right. just because you want it to be that way in this relationship. Whereas in these other relationships, it's, you know, it's different levels of either recreation or, well, yeah, I just like this person. A physical need or yeah. Like or even just, you know, I really, really like this person. Mm -hmm. you know. But if sex is just for the expression of affection, well, you kind of lo you lose the rationale for saying adultery is wrong in the first place. Mm -hmm. If sex is just for expressing 
affection towards someone. Married people are allowed to have affection towards others. They're not cold and distant from other people. They're allowed to have friends. They have friends probably who are of the opposite sex. But the sexual act is reserved just for marriage. But why? Because of the kind of love that it expresses. So I would say that um, adultery, infidelity, uh, also in the 20th century, seeing totalitarian regimes using contraception to solve social problems. The idea that if if fertility is seen as a health problem, basically, it's a problem in society. If individuals see it that way, the government sees it that way, there's overpopulation, allegedly, too many people, allegedly, uh, then the governments will move in, and like we saw in China throughout most of the 20th century, a one-child policy that was graciously raised to a two-child policy recently. Uh, but the and idea they enforced it in China. If people think that it was just kind of a suggestion, they're no. absolutely wrong. Forced sterilization, forced, forced abortions. abortions, and you would lose your ho- you lose your government housing if you were caught having a second or third child that you didn't register with the government. And the idea is that if the sexual act, if the marital act, is not a right and something that properly belongs to married couples, but is just something that people do in society. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, government has the right to regulate what we do in society all the time. Right. Uh, if it's denigrated to that kind of level, and contraception does that to the to the marital act. And you know, it's been interesting for me, you know, as a as a woman, to see the number of my my peers, I guess, if you will, um, who might not have initially accepted the church's teaching on the use of artificial contraception. And, and here, I'm talking about within marriage. I'm not talking about people being uh, promiscuous or fornicating. Um, but because of that, the tremendous impact on women's health. Right. And now we're, you know, for example, we know so much more about how the birth control pill acts as an abortifacient, but also the way it impacts the environment. It, to me, right now, we're at kind of this, I think, really interesting moment where it's men who seem more interested in making sure women are either temporarily or somehow kept, you know, available sexua- sexually. Right but not able to conceive. Though it's interesting, there are women who are now pushing back against this because, who are still in favor of contraception, but you're right that normally people who would identify as feminist or, or, or liberal, they would say, you know, people who would normally try to buy as many organic food and medicines as possible, and yet use all of these hormones. That are that, synthetic hormones. That, that are synthetic and yeah. have negative effects on the body. Uh, and then also that women, experience more of a burden in relationships but the side effects of birth control whereas as men don't most feminists should be in an uproar about that mm-hmm. so i think a lot of them their answer is not to just get rid of contraception it's to pressure men to get things like vasectomies for example if i have to have this burden why don't why don't you do that and just escalating in this kind of arms race oh i will say though that i don't prefer the term actually artificial contraception because it makes it seem like there's there's two kinds what mm-hmm. i would say is that contraception is the deliberate sterilization of the marital act before, during, or after the act. Mm-hmm. That is what contraception is. Mm-hmm. So if, if, it preve- if its goal is to prevent an egg from ovulating, if it prevents sperm from entering the woman's body, right. if it's designed to prevent uh, the sperm from reaching the egg uh, after um, intercourse has taken place, that would be contraceptive. If it's designed to harm the embryo after conception, that'd be abortifacient. Right. Uh, but I would, that would be contraception is sterilization before, during, and after the marital act. Right. 
But like what the church says for spacing families, like the principle of natural family planning right. is recognizing natural periods of fertility and infertility in a woman's cycle. And natural family planning is just composed of two things. Uh, you either, you engage in the marital act free from any barriers or hindrances of any kind, or you do something, you go live your life. Right. That's, that's what natural family planning is. You engage, if you are trying to have a child, you engage in the marital act during a fertile period. If you are avoiding for a just reason, you go do, go do anything else. And then it's either engaging the marital act or going and doing anything else. So there's nothing in there that can be called contraceptive because there is nothing that is sterilizing the act before, during, or after it. All you're doing is you're just engaging in the marital act and you're engaging at different periods of fertility and infertility that God naturally created. I will add, I always think of critics in my mind. Some critics will fire back at what I just said and they'll say, no, contraception is anything you do to avoid pregnancy. So if you're, if you're doing something to avoid pregnancy, that's contraception, so NFP is contraception. Yeah. To which I would say, no, that's a bad definition. Yeah. Because suppose you want to live chastely and you're unmarried. So I would imagine you want to avoid pregnancy you'd practice abstinence, but that's not contraception. Right. But your goal is to not become pregnant, obviously. So you practice abstinence, abstinence is not contraception. Uh, or they'll try to change the definition. Well, it's finding out a way to have sex without getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's contraception, so that's what NFP is. No, okay, well, let's say you become pregnant and you say, oh, well, now that we've become pregnant, we can have sex for nine months at least and not get pregnant. Are you using contraception? The importance here whenever I'm dialoguing with people is make sure we're clear on our definitions and then test our definitions. Right. And the definition I gave is a perfectly coherent one. Contraception is sterilizing the marital act before, during, or after it. Right. And NFP doesn't do that in any way. Right. Okay, so what? Uh, we're, we're on the topic of abortion now, um, which I know you have, you've been a really effective advocate for the unborn. Um, what do you find if you had to give people sort of three pointers on abortion? What's the most effective way to present the pro-life message? Most effective way is to focus on the question, what are the unborn? So when people give an argument for abortion, ask, does this tell me what the unborn are? And if it doesn't, you need to get back to what the unborn are. So if someone says, well, I think some women are too poor, they can't take care of a child. You can agree. Yeah, that's really hard. And then just always apply it to a two-year-old. If it doesn't answer the question, what are the unborn? Right. So to say, look, should we kill two-year-olds because they live in poverty? Should we kill two-year-olds because you have a right to choose? Should we kill two-year-olds because a mom lost her job and her husband left her? No. Well, why not? Because you don't kill people. Well, are the unborn as human as a two-year-old? Mm -hmm. So focus on the question, what are the unborn? And ask the other person to answer it. They mm -hmm. say, oh, it's just a fetus. Well, what's a fetus? Then the next two things I would do would just be to show the unborn are alive, human, whole organisms. They're growing, have human DNA. They're continuing to they're develop. They're distinct, they're unique. Yeah, and There's... then to say they're persons. They're different than we are, but the differences don't matter. They're smaller, they're less developed, but you know they live in a different place, they're more dependent. But infants are smaller, they're less developed than we are. They live in all kinds of different places, mm -hmm. and they're very, very, very dependent, but they're still persons. So I would focus on always go back to the one question, what are the unborn? Show they're living human beings. Ask the person, well, why shouldn't we treat these human beings like other human beings and show the differences between us and the unborn? 
are morally irrelevant. We all should be treated equally. Right. Well, then what would you say, just kind of practically speaking, about engaging with people on the topic of abortion? Do you have recommendations for just um, how to, in a non-combative way that leads to shouting and what have you, how do you talk about this in a way that helps people to understand what the church teaches? I would recommend asking questions. Mm -hmm. It's always easier. So to ask, okay, do you think abortion should be legal? Yeah. Where do you draw the line? Do you think it should be legal through all nine months for any reason whatsoever? Uh, If not, uh, then where do you draw the line and why did you draw it there? And so in doing that, most of the times people will draw it arbitrarily. And you can point that out to them or you can ask, why does that matter? And then you're at the heart of the issue. What are the unborn? So I, I would say, especially that question, all nine months for any reason, do you think that should be the law? And if most people will say no, and then you could ask why. If they say yes, you can say, well, why not just a minute after birth? What if, you know, it's the woman didn't know she's pregnant and gives birth at home? Like, does she have to take care of this baby now? Well, the baby's already born. Okay, why does birth matter? Mm-hmm. Like, why does being in the womb versus outside of the womb change your value? How is the child different five minutes before birth? versus five minutes after. Um, how can where you are change what you are? So I, I think that's a route that I would go. So I, you, you would go more what is being decided rather than who decides. Oh, you're, that, that phrase actually, there was a decision in 1989 and it was after that 89 decision when pro-choice activists decided our message, we are not gonna argue what is being decided it's about who decides yeah. it. NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League, had a whole book called Who Decides. That's right. And that rhetoric came from that 1989 Supreme Court right. decision. I think it was the Webster decision. So in doing that, you want to go the other way. What are the unborn? I need an answer to that question. Because if they're not human, abortion is really not a big deal. But if they are human, uh, abortion simply cannot be justified. That's, so it's like the Lincoln-Douglas debates. That's you right. Know, yeah. It's exactly the position Stephen Douglas took in... Um, when defending slavery, because he said, I'm personally opposed to it. I'd never do it myself. But, you know, if the people of the southern states have decided to do this, right. not my place, right, to get in their way. But how do you respond to the, you know, the moniker that's sometimes put on pro-life people that you're a forced birther? You're not pro-life, you're forced birth. I would ask them, what do you mean by forced birth? Do you mean that I want to force women to become pregnant and give birth? then no, that's not what I believe. Mm -hmm. But I would just say that that is a very ugly and misleading euphemism. I would say I'm not forced birth, I'm anti-dismemberment. I might say, okay, you're making it sound like forcing a pregnant person to give birth, and technically speaking, most pro-lifers are not forced, they're open to healthy C-sections, for example. Right, of course. So uh, that's actually even more misleading Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. I might say, look, it's always hard. Sometimes I try to have dialogue with people. Other times I might just call someone out on the carpet and say, you say forced birth. I think you're really trying to poison the well of this conversation. Can we agree that unborn human being, it's either going to come out alive or dead. My position is that it should be illegal to cause that child to come out dead. What's wrong with that position? I mean, if, you, if you want to call it forced birth, you can call it whatever you want. I call it anti-dismemberment. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I mean, because either way, you're giving birth, right? And That's either- like, it's like saying that making it illegal to kill your two-year-old forces people to be biological parents. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a biological parent. I don't want to know that my kid is out there. Tough cookies. You don't get to kill people. I just want to mention this to our listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, if you feel edified by our conversations, then please share it directly with a friend. 
if you're talking with someone after mass or you're at a coffee shop and this particular topic comes up, please tell them about this podcast and help build them up too. Um, a very well-known Jesuit priest named Father James Martin. There are people who I think want to give him a more charitable read. Um, and, you know, he'll, they'll say things like he's really just trying to help, um, you know, very confused, misunderstood people with understanding that God loves them and God created them and God doesn't reject them. Um, but I'm not sure that I I personally get that from him anymore. I, I think it's more of a much uh, assertive way to try to accept to accept the sin with the sinner rather than how we've always said we love we love the person but we don't condone what scripture and tradition has always made clear um you know our sins against chastity right and i think what's difficult with father james martin is that he does not openly dissent to the church's teachings on let's say sexual activity outside of marriage so you'll have self-proclaimed Catholics, even priests, who will say they, they reject the church's teaching on homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And Father Martin has not publicly done that. Uh, so he has an article, a 2018 article in America Magazine called What the Church Teaches on Homosexuality. And in there, he says that the church teaches, and he says, although the wording he uses is very interesting, and in that he'll talk about how this is what the church teaches, though he doesn't talk about emphatically supporting that it teaches right. that the church teaches this and says it's based while it has roots in scripture it's based on traditional interpretations of natural law mm -hmm. so on the one hand he'll say he affirms the church's teaching on sexual activity outside of marriage uh he'll say that that's uh not possible mm -hmm. uh that can't happen given what the church teaches but then he will say other things that will confuse people. So I would say he is not helping confuse people, he confuses them more, to make them think that th things like homosexual conduct are really not that bad or not bad at all, and sows this kind of confusion. Uh, so for example, if I were to say it's wrong to fire, if I said to you, racism is wrong, the church teaches racism is wrong, but you know what, all these schools are firing these racist teachers. And these are people who are loving, their students really care about them. And just because they might, you know, they just say one thing on a website about the white race, suddenly they're gonna be fired and you're gonna fire them for the sin of racism. Do you fire unloving people? Do you fire the other mean non-racist people at the school? If not, you're really picking on these kind of people. Of course, racism is wrong, but should we be picking on them? These students really can learn a lot from them and things they care about culture, they care about. Realize I, I sound totally absurd mm -hmm. right now. Right. That I, even though I tell you racism is wrong and that we should be opposed to racism, everything else I'm doing confuses you to think, oh, I guess it can't be that bad if we should let racist teachers teach in schools. Um, if I should say, now the teaching on racism, by the way, the Bible never like, it doesn't explicitly say racism is wrong in the same way when we talk about modern theories about race and racial inferiority or superiority. The Bible, it's, I mean, the Bible, if you're going to say racism is wrong because of the Bible, like, are you going to say eating shellfish is wrong? The Bible says that's wrong too. Right. You would start to think, I'm making excuses for racism and I'm trying to confuse you about what the Bible says about mm -hmm. it. Right. And yet that's what Father Martin also does with homosexual conduct. He'll say, well, these Bible passages that seem to clearly condemn homosexual conduct, 
ah, they can be kind of confusing. They're open to interpretation. The Bible also says eating shellfish is wrong. So that's where I think is what he's doing that is harmful, is that he is creating these fatal ambiguities where on the one hand, he'll say he affirms the church's teaching, but then he will encourage people to hold other views, like that the Bible does not clearly condemn the homosexual conduct that is practiced today which the Catechism says, basing itself on sacred, paragraph 2357, the Catechism says, basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents these as acts of grave depravity, says, you know, that they cannot be, cannot be condoned. Uh, Father Martin does not say that. He focuses on paragraph 2358, and where it talks about not unjustly discriminating, which is true. Right, of course. If you have someone who has same-sex attraction, and they're li- living a chaste life, uh, to fire them because you found out that they attend a support group mm-hmm. for people with same-sex attraction, I would call that unjust discrimination mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's obeying the church's teaching and living a chaste life in spite of the orientation that they have or the attraction. Uh, but there is a difference between unjust discrimination and just discrimination. So just as it's permissible to fire a school teacher for lots of reasons, chronic tardiness, right. uh, being mean to their students, uh, supporting legal abortion, being racist. Well, being public about being it. Being public. Right. Because so, what uh, Father Martin will also say is, well, you're not firing the teachers who use contraception. They're not uh, public. Correct. It's not a public act. Right. right. I would say, or the teachers who have divorced and remarried. And I would say, well, if a teacher tells his students, mm-hmm. I use birth control or, oh, divorce, remarriage, it's not a big deal, out the door. No, well, true. so true story. When I worked for a, a large Midwestern archdiocese, uh, we had a situation where a, a Catholic high school president came to the a Christmas party with all the employees. He was uh, he was divorced, and he was with another woman who he introduced as someone he was cohabiting with. And uh, he, there you go. he was fired the next week. Absolutely, because he was fired the next and week. Known and though it's it's grave and it's public, because correct. you might have teachers that are divorced and remarried, and you don't know if they've right. obtained. Or an if you you have a guest or... with you at a Christmas party, it might just be someone who's there to keep you company. You don't have to read anything into it. But when you have a teacher that. who has a photo on their desk of their alleged spouse who is same sex, that clearly, how can a student learn in that, when a student sits in this classroom and hears the church teaches homosexuality is wrong, Mm -hmm. and here's my favorite teacher who is the teacher at this school who has a same sex partner, no no student can take that seriously. They'll they'll say, oh, well, they just say the church teaches this, but the church is wrong. That's the lesson they drive home from that. And that's why this kind of stuff, I, my concern about Father Martin is not that he openly promotes heresy and dissent. Mm. I know you got to... Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I Because I do think there are sometimes he he is promoting dissent, frankly. I, well, but but now, and I, yeah. you know, I do think at least on, on Twitter, he crosses lines sometimes. I, I agree with you. But here's the thing. What Father Martin is very good at is he will walk right up to the line, not cross over it. And then when other people accuse him of crossing the line... He'll say, people are so unfair, and they accuse me of things I never even did. Yeah. And he'll go to his religious superiors and to bishops who are sympathetic, yeah. and he'll say, look at, one, all the mean things people say about me. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, what did you say? Well, I said this. Right. And they'll look at it and see that it has not formally crossed the line. And so, you know, and the ones who are more sympathetic to me, I'm sorry, they, they misread you, mistreated. So that's why it's very, notice what I'm saying here. Though is to say that what you are doing is causing fatal ambiguity that can cause grave spiritual harm and scandalize people. 
and lead them towards what he is is he's scandalous. Can you explain? I will firmly say that he is scandalous. Yes, I, I, and I agree with you. And um, I'm a person of a certain age, but I think many Catholics, I would say probably most Catholics under the age of 40, don't understand what you mean when you say you're giving scandal. Can yes. you just explain that in the Catholic context? Because I think that conjures up images of, you know, somebody walking into church in a bikini or something like right. that. That's kind of scandalous. Um, what does the church mean when the church says you're causing scandal and causing scandal is a sin? Scandal uh, comes from the Greek word scandalon, which can mean that like a snare or a rock you trip over. There's different debates actually about what the word specifically means. But the idea is you're a stumbling block, that it's not that you engaged in an evil act per se. Right. But it was that your public behavior caused other people to think that what was evil is actually good, that it caused other people to sin. Uh, so like the example I gave earlier with the teacher who is in a same-sex is a same-sex relationship, that itself of course is sinful, but the principal who ha hires that person knowing that they are in this kind of relationship or refuses to fire them they cause the sin of scandal because all the students in that class say, oh, this couldn't be that bad because a really bad person would be fired. A racist would be fired. Uh, even a pro-choice person would probably be fired. Uh, a bad person would be fired. This person's not been fired. And so it causes, it causes a scandal in that way. And then of course in our own lives, you know, people can, um, we can give rise to, to scandal. So scandal uh, is public. So when we're talking about public. scandal in the church's context, yeah. you're doing something and you're doing it publicly that could either falsely uh, give, you know, um, a bad, uh, I don't know, re reputation to another or lead someone into sin themselves, which right. is why so, it's so serious. So if you're associating with people who are known for engaging in grave acts of evil, mm -hmm and you're not admonishing them, right. uh, and it appears that you support what they're doing, you can be guilty of scandal in that regard. Uh, if you're a Catholic business person and you, go, and you are um, at a gala for, you know, for pornographers, yeah. Uh, and you, you know, you're or, parenthood, or, you're yeah, or, or even or, if you if you are working with companies, you're directly working with a company that is known to use child slave labor. Mm -hmm. When you could easily use another company that does not do that, right. that's also cooperation with evil. That's right. a little bit different. Right. But you can give scandal to make it seem like, oh, this isn't really that bad. Right. So that's the thing. It would be public behavior that leads people to think a sin is not really a right. sin, with or without material cooperation. With, right. With Sometimes we cooperate. Other times, though, we just might be. I'll give you an example, actually, when I was younger. Uh, I remember once when I was like 22, 23, I went to a party uh, with fr with friends, like a New Year's party, I think. or And there were people drinking, but most of us were over 20. We're over 21. Seemed fine. Then I noticed there were other high schoolers at this party. I was actually involved in youth ministry at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to talk to each of the high schoolers there. Say, so you probably shouldn't be here, probably shouldn't be drinking. And then I left the party. Mm -hmm. And I left, and, and another high schooler I knew was walking up, walked past me and went back in. And I said hi and I left. Now here's what's very sad about that. I did the best that I could in the situation. I realized I talked to the underage, people who were underage drinking, I left the party, but even still, the fact that they knew that I was there probably gave them the impression, this couldn't be that bad. Mm -hmm. Trent was here, yeah, just passing me by on the way in. And so, that's why we have to take great care in causing scandal to others. Right.
because it's just so easy to Particularly if you're a public person if, in the church. Especially if you're a public figure. Right, yeah. because that, that's different. If you work for the church, you're, you're teaching at a Catholic school. You're somehow, you know, you're Father Martin, right? You're a priest but it, of the but church. But if people know that you're a Catholic. Right, right. And you do certain things, mm-hmm. maybe if you're a good Catholic and you do it, it couldn't be that bad. Right. That's I mean, well, this the is the whole thing now with same-sex weddings and yes. the, the number of people who, you know, um, don't understand that if you are practicing Catholic, you cannot go. And, you know, there might be a particular, you know, circumstance where maybe a parent could somehow, you know, be present in some very, very minimal way. It's similar way. to the dilemma of anyone right. getting married outside the church. Well, or marrying a divorced person without, who's not free to marry, right. et cetera, et cetera. Do, do people, does the benefit of you maintaining a relationship with this person outweigh right. the scandal? Or people will know, they'll know, for example, that you do oppose this and you're here for other compelling reasons. Correct. So, right. Yeah, you've made that clear. Another yeah. issue so. of scandal would be, let's say, it's interesting what Pope St. John Paul II said in the Gospel of Life about politicians voting on abortion. That he said a politician can vote for a restrictive but not ideal law prohibiting abortion, provided his full opposition to abortion is well known. That if you say, the best I can do is 12 weeks. I so know. Henry Hyde could vote for a law that had a rape and incest exception. That's right. Because that was the best we could do at the time. And you, you can do what is feasible. Uh, whereas that's different than somebody who wants to, let's say you want to go from abortion on demand to 12 weeks, doesn't mean you're endorsing everything 12 weeks and earlier. Right. And people know that about you right. and they know you're trying to do the most good you can. That's different from a Catholic politician who goes from a place where abortion is illegal and expands it to 12 weeks. They're voting, both are voting for 12 weeks, but one is causing evil and scandalizing others. In the right, process. and has different motivations, that's again, right. that are public. So that's, that's, right. the, that's the other distinction. Well, one of the you know issues that sometimes I think gets wrong, well, I don't know about wrongly, but inappropriately and accurately kind of hooked onto the consistent ethic of life. And Evangelium Vitae, of course, was a consistent ethic document, yes, yeah. if you read it in its entirety, that's right. um, is climate change. And particularly since Laudato Si, um, there have been a lot of people who have come out as kind of Catholic environmentalists yeah. and, you know, um, climate justice, you know, warriors or whatever you want to call them. But uh, you yourself have done quite a bit of research on this and you've had um, a formal conversation with another Catholic advocate on yes. this, I guess, a debate, maybe, I, uh, to use another word. Um, what was different in your research of climate change than we might hear from, say, the typical narrative? Well, I think that uh, some Catholics who care a lot about climate change and identify as environmentalists would say that certain prudential judgments about what is the best way to promote human flourishing and to treat the environment, certain of their judgments are moral obligations that everyone must follow. Right. So if you don't recycle, then that's a sin. If you intentionally don't Yes. Throw that plastic Starbucks cup into the recycle bin. Yes, even though recycling, we've known for decades that recycling actually doesn't really do very much to help the environment. Uh, it causes more waste. Most goods cannot actually be recycled. Uh, it's now, negligible. It, it, you know, people mean well, but it's a neg- negligible benefit to the society. Yes, and it can actually cause harm in some cases. But uh, that or uh, buying an electric car, uh, if you want to do that, that's great. But people say, oh, you have a moral obligation to do that without taking into account, well, what if you are, uh, you know, you're a land, you're a, a landscaper in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to haul tons of heavy stuff in a Minnesota winter 
Those electric powered trucks tend to not go very you far need in diesel Minnesota fuel. winters. You can't even use regular gas. You need diesel. Yeah, and the electric and cars won't last you very long no. in those kind of environments. Um, understanding these are these are different judgments. So the church's competency lies in faith and morals. So the church teaches we we have a duty to care for the environment, to be good stewards of the environment. Uh, but scientific questions about how is the climate changing, what are human effects on it. Uh, what are the different ways humans can alter the climate and change climate change in the future? Uh, those are scientific questions that the church doesn't have a teaching authority over. Right. Now, the church does offer prudential judgments. It mm -hmm. offers recommendations for the faithful to take seriously. Uh, and it's up to the faithful to dialogue about, you know, what is the best way to consider these things. Right. But I think that some people in this debate, what they'll focus on, for example, like take fossil fuels they will only focus on what are the costs of fossil fuels, but not their benefits. Mm -hmm. So you're not able to make a sound policy decision. If you and you over-exaggerate the costs. Right. So you might say, well, the use of fossil fuels will cause the apocalypse. And so any cost of abandoning fossil fuels, like if the apocalypse is a negatively infinite cost, right. you're willing to tolerate any misery that could arrive from abandoning fossil fuels. Except even established climate change scientists do not believe that even under the worst case scenarios of climate change, which even now scientists are saying are no longer plausible, right. even the worst case scenarios would not result in the destruction of the planet. They would not result in human extinction. Uh, now they will result in uh, changing weather patterns that could result in more climate related deaths or deaths of a certain kind. And so it can result in suffering that we have to balance. Mm -hmm. But as I said, the costs of using fossil fuels uh, also has to be weighed against the costs of abandoning them. So for example, in, in the past century, climate-related deaths have plummeted, uh, I think by about 90% mm -hmm. uh, through the use of fossil fuels, that throughout history, most people were killed by the cold, not by the heat. Right. And so while heat-related deaths have risen, Cold-related deaths have dropped more sharply because we can more we can reliably temperature control buildings. We can reliably respond to disasters when they occur and get food and medicine and refrigerate those things for people and get them to people. Uh, so there are fossil fuels have provided a tremendous benefit to human society and flourishing, and half the world has no access to them. And in many of those cases, it's just not feasible to give them things like a, a, an unreliable solar panel. That doesn't really work at night, and you don't, or wind turbines that don't move when the wind doesn't blow. Uh, that if modern countries, the most advanced countries on earth, like the, the United States, Germany, Spain, Scandinavia, uh, you, you look in Sweden, for example, people will say, well, Sweden has like 80%, 90% of their energy is renewable. Uh, it's not, uh, it's these renewables, it's not fossil fuels. Well, it turns out they only 1% only of it comes from solar panels. The vast majority of it comes from dams or nuclear. Yeah. Uh, and so you have half the world cooking their food with animal dung uh, or using wood-burning stoves to provide heat and light, which causes hundreds of thousands of people to die from premature deaths. Children get asthma. Uh, they have unreliable access to medicine and to, to food. Energy is necessary to lift them out of poverty. So. Those, what I'm saying with climate change is that it is more complicated than the simple narrative of fossil fuels are going to destroy the earth, we have to get rid of them. Right. Catholics are free, we have to have a duty towards the environment, but also 
the environment serves the welfare of human beings, and then to have discussions about balancing this. Maybe we won't be fossil carbon neutral by 2050. Maybe it'll be 2080. Maybe so it's, it's a benefits burden sort of argument. And it's, and it's one that relies on speculative computer models about what will happen in the future that nobody's really, that the church certainly is not an expert on. Right. And so we have to have that dialogue about what, what kind of interventions are prudent and what interventions will simply not accomplish any good but could cause immense harm for people. And that's a debate Catholics should be willing to have. Yeah, and it's but it's interesting though when, when this topic is broached, and if you as a Catholic bring up the contamination of the water supply because of birth control pills right. that can't be, because they're synthetic, can't really be taken out completely, and the feminization of fish and tadpole populations. I mean, yeah. it's a real problem. And there was, there was a really interesting article, I think it was in the New York Times about, um, particular area where there is, they have found large concentrations of pharmaceuticals in the water. Right. And I think they don't even have enough boys in this particular town to, to field a baseball team because yeah. it, it's an oddly proportionate number of females over males, like 80% or something. Yeah, yeah, um, so there's been all, you know, but you raise that and then, you know, you're, you're just trying to, you know, be a forced birth. Right. That, that and, <laughs> ecological concern doesn't right, matter. Right. Exactly. So they kind of pick and choose too, which of the, which also you know, when discussing climate change, the alternatives that are offered like solar and wind power, right. uh, they're not completely clean. You have to have these large uh, polluting mines to mine rare earth minerals like lithium right. to create batteries and create the dynamos for uh, those photovoltaic cells and the dynamos and the wind turbines, uh, which often happens in places like China where it causes environmental harm mm -hmm. and uses things like child labor, which is also right. the case in the, the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Most rare earth metals come from there, they, they use as child labor. Uh, and so there you have, you know, once again, you have to say there's cost benefit trade-offs to everything that you do. And there's just not one neat solution that the church is endorsed in this question. Right. Well, um, let's move on to another particularly difficult topic, I think. Um, and this is where you'll still to this day get a lot of division and that would be capital punishment right. or, or the death penalty. Um, Pope Francis has, um, I, I thought, it, it wasn't helpful because he didn't clarify what he meant. He used the phrase inadmissible, right. that, that the death penalty was inadmissible. I think in Evangelium Vitae, St. John Paul II had made it clear that at least in developed societies, it really wasn't possible to justify capital punishment. Yes, he said that justification was practically non-existent. Correct, right. So, but leaving the door open because defense of self and others is right. still permitted, even if that is being done by a government and not right. an individual person. Um, and I don't think you could ever say that intrinsically defending yourself or others is evil. Um, but so what, how do you when, you, when you're engaging on this, what's the best argument you've heard in favor of capital punishment, and how do you help a person understand that that argument might fall short in terms of how we look at human beings and their dignity from God? Right, so uh, there's might be a secular and a religious argument. Uh, so the secular argument would be that capital punishment is necessary to protect society from those who could cause harm, as, uh, so it's a, it's a protective element for right. society. Uh, and I would say there that if you look around the world, the places that tend to use, and so people say, well, very, very poor countries will need this. They don't have supermax prisons, things like that. It turns out the poorest countries in the world are also the ones that tend to abolish the death penalty. Mm -hmm. The most common places where the death penalty is used today are in Muslim theocracies, fairly oh, wealthy interesting. ones, yeah. or, or dictatorships like North Korea. That's where the death penalty tends to be the most common, mm -hmm. where it's administered. 
So I believe that there are ways uh, to protect society without the use of the death penalty. Uh, the other argument would be more of a religious one, saying that the church can't really contradict itself because in the past, like scripture has said the death penalty can be used for good. Uh, the church talked about the goodness of using the death penalty. So how could it be bad now if it was good back then, right? Mm. Things can't change in that way. Right. So I think that there's two options one might go with this. One might say that what we find in the catechism is a, once again, a prudential judgment on the part of the Pope. Mm -hmm. And so it is one that one should give, should give respect to, but is not bound to follow. And that would be the judgment that society no longer needs the death penalty. That, that judgment Universally, is, in every case. Right, and know. that the, the church is not competent to, to teach that as doctrine. And so that's a prudential judgment you'd be free to disagree with. Right. That is one approach that you might take if you struggle with the teaching on the death penalty. The other approach one might take is to see this as a natural unfolding of the teaching on human dignity and understanding that uh, we should not directly kill human life unless it's in the immediate process of trying to kill another right. human life. If we can, that's why you only kill an intruder in self-defense. Uh, once the police have handcuffed him, you can't shoot him in the chest. And you're not in immediate danger. That's right. right. Yeah. Even if he might, what if he breaks out in the future? Like, well, you, you still can't really do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so one way I think they help people is say, well, how could it have been good in the past and okay now? To understand that the church's social teachings might be applied in different contexts. And I think people can understand this with the death penalty in that the death penalty has been used in the past in ways that even modern defenders of the death penalty would not justify today. Right. So you might say, well, the church used it a thousand years ago. How could it be wrong now? Well, the church also used it that you could receive the death penalty for uh, hunting on the Lord's land, for stealing uh, a horse. I think there was a, a phrase that men are hanged not for stealing horses, but so that horses will not be stolen. The idea is that, it's yeah, stealing horses isn't that bad, but we don't want people stealing horses. And it's the most effective way to deter them. But most people would find that to be unjust, that if we, I might say, should we have the death penalty for Grand Theft Auto today? Should we have it for, uh, most people today would only allow it for murder, some kinds of rape. And really atrocious you know, uh, and, terrible set of circumstances. And so what I would say is that, how could this change? Well, we, we as Catholics believe in development, right. how doctrine develops over time, and especially with social doctrine, to say, look, 2,000 years ago, there was a wide array of cases where the death penalty could be used. In the Old Testament, you're gathering sticks on the Sabbath, you know, to maintain order in a hostile world. Mm -hmm. But as time goes on, the, just, the justifications begin to shrink. And then when we get to the modern age, like, no, we're not going to hang people for stealing horses. We don't need to do that anymore. And we have a penal system that really can guarantee That's right. and someone so, won't be a danger. And so if you see that it's continually shrinking over time, one day maybe you could get to a point where there are, there are no cases that justify it. So one would be the prudential judgment uh, view of what the catechism says. The other would be the development of doctrine view. I think Catholics can hold both in understanding this teaching and how it relates to the larger picture of uh, Catholic theology. Right. So in general, we oppose it, but you, it, it's not an intrinsic evil in the same way abortion would be. And that's where, if you notice that the term inadmissible is used, mm -hmm. you might use the phrase ought not be done. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, could we say uh, slavery ought not be done anymore, even though there was a time where in the Bible, people sold themselves into slavery to not starve to death. Most people who came to America came as debt slaves. Mm -hmm. You couldn't afford to come to America as an immigrant, so you told a, a worker, you told an employer, I'll work for you for five years, 
to pay off my f passage for coming here. Mm -hmm. And But now we would say, no, you, you can't force people to work for you in that way. Right. Even if it was necessary at a time, even if there could be cases where you would help people, debt slavery ought not be, it's inadmissible. Right. It's, right. But maybe there could be a time where it's understandable where someone might use it. Now the, the situation is different. I think that can help people put things in a proper context. Trent, if people want to listen to your podcast or get a hold of some of the books that you've written, where's the best place to do that? Well, I would recommend my website is trenthorn.com. They can also go to catholic.com and search for my name there for articles that I've written. Uh, my books are available at Catholic bookstores. And they can check out my podcast, The Council of Trent, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, Council of Trent. Yes, I see what you did there. Yes, yes. Uh, that's available on YouTube, uh, iTunes, Google Play. Well, Trent Horn, thank you for being with us on the Edify podcast. It was great to have a conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.